tell us how you met then. Well, at one point, I came to realize that uh, I really want to learn to speak English because I wanted to go somewhere else, be a missionary, and just learning, just knowing Finnish wasn't going to cut it. So I came to England, and I w- worked as a volunteer in a place, and Judy was a student there. Okay. And our eyes met over a cup of hot chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> where, where did you meet then? That was in High Wycombe, in, in High England. Wycombe. Okay. Now, you were, you were, uh, you were in High Wycombe. Why, why were you there? I found about this place called Wycliffe Bible Translators, and um, I was able to work there as a volunteer on the grounds, maintenance, anything that there was. Um, I wasn't paid, but uh, I figured that if I'm, there, if I'm there long enough, I would learn to speak English. Okay, okay. Why were you there, Judy? So for a number of years, I had been... Uh, heading towards um, being a Bible translator. Um, And uh, I was there for a whole year to learn how to analyze a language that has never been written before, um, how to do uh, literacy, how to uh, conduct language development activities, and how to do Bible translation. So I was there for a whole year. Okay, so uh, you were there because you already had some sense of this is what I want to do. So how did that come about? How did you know? Why did you want to be a Bible translator? So I had grown up in a Christian home um, and at a young age I had um, believed in Jesus and then during my teen years I read a lot of books on uh, missionaries, uh, missionary biographies in particular so I read about um, Jim um, and Elizabeth Elliot in Ecuador with the Oka Indians, Isabel Kuhn in China, C.T. Studd, China, India, Africa. And I felt that when I grow up, I want to be a missionary to as remote a place as possible. I have to ask <laughs> you about that. Because for some people, you know, I mean, I've heard people say, I just... I had this fear that if I became a Christian, if I believed in God, put my faith in Jesus, then he would definitely send me to some (laughs) deepest, darkest tribe somewhere, and that would be my worst fear. But for you, it was full of excitement? It was, that was the most exciting thing. So really, from the time I was a teenager, I was heading towards that. Then studying languages at university, it was there that I heard about Wycliffe Bible translators. And I thought, you know, this is just perfect that I can be a missionary and use the gifts that God has given me with languages uh, to do that. So finished university, went to Bible college um, in the south of England, and then came to the Wycliffe Centre for my final year. Uh, So before you got to Wycliffe, did you have to have an interview where they said, tell us why you want to... Oh, yes. It was was a very long uh, process, application process. Right, okay. Yeah, Yeah. just not just to see whether you've got the skills, but presumably, well, we'll find out as we go through the rest of this 
talk, but it's not just about being able to do the job when you get there, is it? No, I think a lot of it was about your character and ability to be resilient in difficult situations. Okay, uh -huh. all right. Okay, well, we'll continue with that in a little bit. But Iska, tell us, for you, you were there to learn English and you're doing maintenance in the grounds of Wycliffe. How did that then become a call or a desire to be a translator yourself? Well, I grew up in Finland, had a normal childhood, normal teenage years. But by the time I was about 18, I realized that there was something seriously missing. I, I really started to think that there has to be something more to life. I wasn't satisfied. And I, I started to look everywhere. Um, what is it that I'm, I'm wanting? What is it that I'm missing? And I started to look towards... Uh, Eastern religions, and uh, I was drawing ideas for, from Hinduism and Buddhism, and, um, but then I also started to read my parents' um, wedding Bible. And I discovered that this book has got something in it that uh, nothing else that I had read before had. And I was really drawn to it, and I read a lot over, over two years and I really started to understand who Jesus is, what he has done, um, why he came. He's the son of God. He died for my sins. Um, he came to show me the way to God. He is the way. And uh, I started to get this hope that I had never known before that existed. I, I came to believe in Jesus. Um, I came to believe in God. I saw everything in new life, new light. Everything started to make sense. I started to feel much happier, better person, all that. And all this, I basically, I learned from this book, mm. a Bible in the Finnish language. Somebody had gone through the border of translating the Bible into Finnish, and I thought that lights came on, I suddenly, realization came to me, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do with my life. I was given this chance through this book to know God. I want to give this same chance to somebody else. Okay. Okay. And so grounds work at Wycliffe was, in a sense, another way in. But you presumably had to have your big, strong, serious, heavy interview as well. There came a point where you, too, applied to be a Bible translator, not just a groundsman at Wycliffe. Yes, yes. Um, I went through various interviews in Finland after I had been to the Wycliffe Center in Horsley Screen okay. in, in England. Because... I went there thinking just that I'm here to learn English. But slowly I started to realize Wycliffe Bible translators. <laughs> oh. <laughs> where have I come to? Okay. And uh, I became very interested in, in pursuing this and becoming a member. They sent me back to Finland to, because there was an office in Finland and I had to do all my 
Bible tests and interviews in there. But I passed. So, so meanwhile, there's a steaming cup of hot chocolate and two pairs of eyes meeting across it. Because <laughs> I do happen to know, Judy, that your plans with Wycliffe were headed in a slightly different direction. In fact, you were on the cusp of doing something a little different from what you did do. Do you want to tell us about that? So I was uh, just uh, about ready to be sent out by our church in St. Andrews as a single missionary to French-speaking West Africa. And it was at that point that Iska and I met. Um, So that changed things a little bit for me. Um, But basically, uh, we got married and we lived in Finland for three years uh, while Iska um, went to Bible college and so on. Um, And during that time, then it became clear that Papua New Guinea uh, would be our uh, destination. Okay, how, who decided, I mean, the Lord ultimately, but I mean, how, how did that come to you? Was Papua New Guinea, there was a need and, and they suggested it was right for you to go or there were a range of possibilities and that was the one you felt drawn to? How did it work? Um, right from the beginning, we felt that uh, uh, we didn't have a specific call to a specific country. Our call was the Bible translation. And... Uh, during the time that we were thinking where should we go, we started to hear a lot about Papua New Guinea. We met missionaries who were working there, and uh, also my home church suggested Papua New Guinea because they already had somebody there. And uh, Papua New Guinea, um, when we when we studied the country, we realized that this is this is the ethnically most complex place in the world. There are like seven to eight hundred different ethnic tribes all speaking their own languages. Uh, The need for Bible translation is enormous. Um, So that started to speak to us. And um, there was also a good school. We were looking forward to having some place for our two boys to be educated, and that all worked out very well. Okay, so... You knew a little bit about Papua New Guinea. For people who don't know, because I have to say, you know, my geog- last geography exam I ever sat, I got 27% for. So let's assume there's at least one person here who's as much of a geography duffer as me. Where is Papua New Guinea? Papua New Guinea is just north of Australia. A lot of people think that Papua New Guinea is in Africa, but no, it's in the Pacific. Okay, and what kind of climate? I mean, seven to 800 tribes with their own languages. What, tell us a little bit about well, I know we're going to see some pictures, but give us a flavor before we get to that. Well, it's pretty much on the equator. So it's, uh, it's tropical, it's rainforest, it's, um, there are a lot of mountains. Basically, it's a very, very hostile um, territory. Um, and that kind of explains the linguistic uh, uh, variety in the country. These, all these tribes, they are locked into certain um, geographical areas separated by huge mountains and big rivers and swamps. And, uh, and uh, that's why there have been so little um, happening between the tribes and they have been kept separated. It's a developing country. There's hardly any infrastructure. There's very poor road network. There are no trains. In fact, one of the best ways to get around the country is by aeroplane. There are more little grass airstrips in the country than 
anywhere else in the world. <laughs> okay. And so if you love flying, that is a great place. <laughs> do you love flying? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Did you learn to love it, or were you okay from the start? No, I think uh, I had a flight simulator on my computer. Okay. Um, no, that's not right, because it was so long ago we went to Papua New Guinea that nobody knew about computers at that point. Yeah, okay. But you, yeah, everyone had Microsoft Flight Simulator sooner or later. What year did you go? We went 1990. In 1990, okay. Now, um, 1990, uh, was it the, just the Kamula people? I mean, tell it that the tribal history in Papua New Guinea was interesting. Uh, in terms of, because I, I know that up until relatively recently, before that, it had been quite a savage <laughs> environment, potentially. Yeah, so we, as Iska said, there are about seven to 800 different tribes in Papua New Guinea. So we initially just went to Papua New Guinea. We had four months of um, jungle training, uh, first to go through and at that time uh, Peter was two and a half and Benji was four months and uh, we trekked up and down mountains and through rivers and overnights in the jungle and whatnot um, initially and then uh, we survived to tell the tale <laughs> and, <Clearly>. <laughs> <laughs> and then we started to look at different uh, reports that the Wycliffe mission center had about different tribes and um, we came across a letter uh, that had been written by a group of people called the Kamula so it's an amazing story um, uh, how the Kamula uh, managed to uh, contact Wycliffe so it was roughly the same time that Iska was searching for meaning and purpose in his life. Roughly the same time I started university and heard about Wycliffe, that the chief of the Kamula people, called Dekapoe, uh, at that time, uh, the Kamula people, which is the mid-70s to late-70s, they were cannibals and headhunters, probably among the last uh, tribe to be cannibals in the world at that time. So it was Dekapoe who led people, uh, his people on raids against neighboring tribes, uh, killed people, brought the bodies back and cut them up, cooked them and ate them, and then waited uh, in fear for retaliation by that tribe. That was their lifestyle. Mm. It was one of attacking, raiding, and then waiting for the revenge. Um, and in the middle of all that, we think it was about the mid-1970s, Dekapoe felt in his heart that there had to be a better way of life. And he'd heard that away down river through the jungle, there were rumors that there were two white people. He didn't know anything about them, but he just felt that he had to go and find them. So he got into his dugout canoe and paddled away down river for about two weeks by himself. And he found those two uh, they were men, Australian missionaries. And Dekapoe said to them, I've done many bad things in my life. I've killed people and I've eaten them and I'm afraid to die. Can you help me? Wow. And via a trade language, uh, those two missionaries told him the gospel. Yeah. So they told him, if you believe in Jesus, 
And if you uh, ask forgiveness for your sins, you can be sure that you, uh, when you die, you won't really die. You will go and live with Jesus. And Decapoe accepted that message and so became the first Kamula Christian. And um, he said to those men, come back to my village and tell all my people what you've just told me. And they did come um, and uh, told uh, the Kamula the same message. And as one, the whole tribe decided to follow Jesus. Wow, okay. We think that was the late 1970s. How, how, what size was the tribe and how many people so were talking? So maximum we're talking 1,000, maybe 1,500. Wow. About four other tribes in the area all speak Kamula. It was regarded as the lingua franca of the area. Okay. So a strong language spoken by uh, other tribes as well. So the missionaries helped uh, the people build an airstrip, supplied axes, and with their axes they cut through the jungle, made a grass airstrip, and that was meant then that um, people from outside could come by plane. They started a school, a health center, and a church. And pastors from a huge language group about half an hour flight away through the jungle were the first pastors among the Kamula. But they spoke their own language. They had um, a Bible translated into their language. The Kamula people didn't understand that. <laughs> and that was the situation throughout the 1980s. And then finally, Decapoa, along with the people, were saying, if we really want to understand what God is saying to us, we need the Bible in our language. So it would just, it would be as if French missionaries came here and exactly. there were French pastors with yes. a French Bible, exactly. but nobody speaks exactly. French. Okay. So they contacted Wycliffe um, and said, please send somebody to help us translate God's word into our language. That was the very year that we arrived in right. PNG. And when we read that, we thought, this is it. That's exciting. Exciting and daunting. I uh, mean, did you have any moments when those first four months of trekking through the jungle, two small kids, where you thought, what have you done? <laughs> Lord, are you sure? <laughs> I, I don't know. I remember um, the, the jungle camp training was very hard have to say that. Um, when we were living with the Kamula, um, and they'd only, you know, stopped cannibalism, well, we didn't even know. Iska went initially to do a survey when he read that letter. All that Wycliffe knew was that the Kamula used to be or were practicing cannibalism in the late 1970s. So then the first step was that Iska and a male colleague went out to the area see what the situation was. <laughs> Hoping to come back. Hoping to come back, <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, of course, when they were there, they realized that the people had stopped cannibalism. Um, that was a result of Decapoy becoming a Christian. Christian. Right. The first thing he did was he went to their main enemies with his bow and arrows, and he broke them in front of wow. them okay. as a sign that now the conflict was over and there was peace. Right. Um, I remember uh, distinctly when we lived with the Kamula, thinking I could not possibly be happier. Wow. Um, That's beautiful. That, you know, I just had that strong conviction. God has called us here. This is the place for us. And these are our people. Yes. Wow. Okay. 
Now, I know that you've got some pictures and you're going to yeah. show us a little bit of what life was like. So I think Iska's on PowerPoint duty and Judy's going to talk us through. Is that right? We are, but we'll just zip through these very okay. quickly. We're okay. We're fine. Can you see from where you're sitting, Judy? Yeah. Iska, see any better for you? So, yeah, we... <laughs> Just wanted to clarify that PNG, we call it PNG for short, Papua New Guinea, north of Australia. Uh, uh, big island, so it's just the east side of it is Papua New Guinea. Uh, the west side used to be called Uriyanjaya. Uh, now it's West Papua, belongs to Indonesia. And this is us uh, flying uh, on our way to uh, the Kamula uh, airstrip. Um, so this is all their land, their jungle. That's the airstrip there, um, some of the houses around it. Uh, they all lived in uh, so-called bush houses made uh, entirely from materials from the jungle. No nail, not a single nail used in the construction of their houses. Wow, yeah. um, so we flew in little planes like this, uh, Cessna 206 planes. And that's us. <laughs> Uh, not long after we uh, arrived for the first time among the Kamula in 1991. So Peter was almost four and Benji was one. And he, Benji learned to walk uh, there in the village. Um, so, yeah, the Kamula are still hunters and gatherers. They're probably among um, the last group, again, in the world who are hunters and gatherers. They don't plant anything. Um, incredibly resourceful uh, people uh, make everything themselves. Um, bone in the nose. Do, was that common? What's the bone in the nose for? Is that decorative? Decorative. Or? Right, yeah. okay. Like yeah. earrings, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's right. right. Okay. Yeah. This is a good friend, Kaminato, and she looked after Peter and Benji often <laughs> uh, to enable us to do some work. And this is our house that we lived in for 17 years. <laughs> Um, absolutely loved our house. Um, was Raised up on stilts, that's because of weather, monsoons? partly or? to keep snakes out, and it's also nice to sit under the house, you get a nice breeze. So, guys, learn how to do handiwork. Um, <laughs> I am so thankful I married somebody who is a great handyman, who can build and fix anything. So um, initially, uh, so we didn't have running water for a year in the house. Um, then Iska put metal on the roof, welded a water tank together, so, um, and we had a, what's called a header tank. We pumped the water from the big tank into the header tank, and then Iska put, um, what was it, pipes? <laughs> uh, so that we had water, gra gravity, gravity-fed water <laughs> into the house. Yay! And it was a great day when we finally had running water in the house. And Iska, uh, before we'd even gone to PNG, he'd thought, how can we have a shower? And he had figured out a shower system. And then it was a great disappointment to him when we arrived and he discovered we can actually buy these uh, so-called bucket showers in, in uh, some <laughs> shops in the cities. So you just pull it up on the uh, hoist and open it. Oh, that's like the a, bucket? Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, it's okay. the bucket. You open it, it's like a watering can. Yeah, that's great. Um, sometimes during the drought, uh, our family of four had to share one bucket of water 
So each of us was rationed a quarter of a bucket to have our shower. How long did the drought last when it came? Uh, it could last for weeks, six weeks or so. Oh, and gosh. then our, we didn't have water in the tank and um, the boys and the people helped us to get water from the river and we bathed in the river and washed clothes and stuff. Okay. Eventually we um, lived in luxury. Iska put uh, metal on the entire uh, roof, um, so that was great, and we've got. Uh, Are those PVC cells? Is that like photovoltaic cells or something on top of the water, the header tank? No, am I just? Uh, there that? we've got a solar panel. It's a solar panel. It's yes. a solar panel. Uh-huh. So we had one solar panel, and that car charged, gave power to a car battery, and that enabled us to have twelve volt lights and to run a computer if we'd had enough sun. <laughs> Amazing. So, if you get enough sun, you can run your computer. Yeah. See, just think about that. <laughs> think about that. It would never work in Glasgow, would it? <laughs> Sharing one device. And we are so thankful that um, Peter and Benji uh, were well looked after by uh, the village people and the village kids. And just the way in which Peter and Benji loved being in the village was a huge contribution to our work. If that had not been the case, it would have been very difficult for us to continue in the village. But they had a great time. Uh, we schooled them through our, our, their primary years, and then they tried to get school done as quickly as possible, and then off uh, with their friends. Um, so they lived a very outdoorsy lifestyle. Uh, we had snakes. <laughs> <laughs> She said matter-of-factly. What kind of snakes? <laughs> we had all kinds. So we had like deadly t- ones then? We did. Yes, okay. The deadly ones were small. If you were bitten, you would die within five hours. There okay. was no anti-venom in the whole country. You would have had to be evacuated to Australia. Right. By which time it would have been too So late. you learned pretty quickly where not to go and yes, just how to right. make sure you were... Yes, and if Peter and Benji ran into long grass where snakes often would be, the whole village would be yelling, snake, 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 you know. In other words, get your child out of out the grass. Of there. Uh-huh. How did you balance? I know, it, I mean, you, you talked there about homeschooling and, and teaching Peter and Benji, but at the same time, you and Iska are there to... That's quite, you know, a business. Learning a language, then writing it down. It's never been written before. And translating the Bible, that's quite a lot to balance. It was. Um, we kind of shared everything. Um, and we also took uh, Peter and Benji with us often. Uh, the initial two to three years, we were simply... Um, building relationships and trying to figure out the language. It had never been written down before, so there was nothing written in Kamula. There was no dictionary or grammar book or any kind of literature. So um, I went uh, wherever the women were. I hung out with them. Um, Iska hung out with the men. And we just switched off with the children. You know, sometimes Kaminato came and looked after the boys. Um, Sometimes they came with me, sometimes with Iska. And we just juggled things. We shared everything. Um, How long did it take? I mean, I realize there's never a point where I don't speak the language, and now I do. But how long do you think it took you to be able to communicate reasonably effectively? After a couple of years. A couple of years. Mm-hmm. So those first two years, was it a lot of sign language? And oh, four years <laughs> <laughs> for Iska. Four years for Iska. Okay. Uh, right. 
Yes, a lot of sign language. Um, and where you'd like, you, know, you always had a notebook and a pencil, yes. so as soon as so you got something, you exactly, wrote it down? Exactly, we wrote it down. Whatever the people said, we wrote it down in phonetics. Um, and then after we'd put the boys to bed, Iska and I shared, compared notes. What did you get today? What did you get today? What do you think that bit means? What do you think that bit means? And then we started putting everything onto the computer and making a dictionary. And the people understood what you were there to yes. do, so there were yes. presumably some people who were patiently right. helping, helping you and going over were. stuff. Yes. And yes, that's right. The Kamula people could not have been more supportive okay. right. or welcoming. They loved us from the beginning. Dekapoi was there when we arrived, um, and he became our very good friend. And Peter and Benji played with his grandchildren. Um, so, yes, without the support of the Kamula people, it would have been very different. Okay, right. Iska spent a lot of his time fixing things. That was one of the ways that he spent time with people, just by fixing uh, stuff. So eventually, we figured out an alphabet, made books, taught the people to read and write, okay. uh, conducted uh, adult literacy uh, for you know, the men, the women, and the children. And it was just great to see them all learning how to, how to read and write. And in amongst that then, I mean... You're reading, you're writing, you, you know, and so on. Um, and at the same time, sharing faith and, and planting church, or, or was that all kind of woven through that? It was all kind of woven through it. And when we arrived, there was a church there. Yes. Um, but the great thing was, uh, can you just move on to the next slides? You know, as we started, this is our translation office. Um, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and... Uh, both of us worked on translation. So as we uh, worked on translation, you know, we would work, you know, for example, for a whole year on the book of Mark, and that went through, you know, the uh, initial draft and revision, second draft, etc., all the consultant checking and whatnot, when it was finally deemed uh, good and, you know, publishable, we would print it off, and we would give those copies to the pastors to the youth leaders and they would use them in church so that was great to see god's word being used as we went along great and, and presumably strategic for you to make sure that you were teaching the best people yes, in terms exactly. of the pastors and teachers yes, exactly. so that they in turn could yeah, take up the exactly. load of teaching yeah all the time we were trying to hand over our work you know our aim was to make ourselves redundant yeah um, so we trained teachers to teach literacy. Uh, we conducted Bible classes and we trained, you know, pastors how to do that. Um, and people from other villages came so that they could then go back to their villages and do the same. Gosh, how many villages were Kamula? Uh, there were only three Kamula villages, but then people came from other languages. You said it was yeah. a lingua franca, right. so it was able to go to other tribes because they already had Kamula yeah. as well. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. So, uh, usually the translation went well, but sometimes there were challenges. <laughs> Iska looks quite challenged so there. So, Iska's <laughs> going to come. Do you want to just put on the blank slide after that? Yeah. Iska's going to come and talk about challenges. Okay, yeah, please do. Because it can't, I mean, it sounds idyllic, it sounds wonderful, and sitting here in the comfort of this comfort, it sounds as though it was an easy thing, but it clearly wasn't. 18 years in anyone's life is not without challenges, but that's an uphill struggle. Yes, after 
all the years that we, we lived with the Kamula, we were collecting um, a dictionary, a lexicon. And uh, we never got any more than uh, 2,000 words on that lexicon. If you think of the English language, uh, uh, you may know or you may not know that there are about half a million words in the English language. And there are, we figured out 2,000 words in, in Kamula. And, uh, well, it worked very well for them. It's, it was designed for survival in the surroundings where they lived. There was an almost complete lack of any kind of um, abstract terminology. Um, for example, when we started working on translation, you know, we came fairly quickly across the word repentance. What is repentance? There's not a single word in Kamula language that can, can describe that. So we devised a little short sentence. So it is change your mind and turn towards God. So that worked very well for repentance. And, uh, but then moving on came other terms. Let's take hope. Our theme, theme today is, is yeah. hope. What is hope? Of course, there was no word. There may have been a concept in the minds of the Kamala people, what is hope, but uh, how, do you, how do you say that? How do you put that in writing? Because you know, we were, after all, translating. How do you say hope? So after some careful consideration and study, we, we decided that hope is something that, uh, we, that we wait for something, we confidently wait for something good that God has promised to do. Mm. So that was our concept for hope. Now, in uh, Colossians 1.27, there are these great words. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What wonderful words they are. How would you translate that? You don't have a word for hope. You don't have a word for glory. So that takes some unpacking. You, you just try to work through very carefully what is all meant by those words. Christ in you, hope of glory. And the more you think about it, you realize that you have come to one of the great pearls, jewels of, of the Bible, the message of Christianity. What is the basic message? It is that the hope that we have in Christ, it is the eternal life that God has promised to us in heaven because of everything that Jesus has done for us. That is the hope that we have, the hope of glory. And that takes away fear. It takes away the fear of death, which so plagues the world nowadays. But you have this joyful anticipation of what God has promised you, eternal life with him. So what is Christ in you, the hope of glory in Kamula. So it goes something like this. 
we are joyfully waiting for the eternal life in heaven, which God has promised to us because of the work Christ has done for us and because he now lives in us. The Kumila Bible must be quite long. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have it somewhere. It is long. <laughs> because as you can see, the information flow is fairly slow in the text. So this is about, this is about a thousand pages for the New Testament. Yes. Wow. Okay. And in many ways, I mean, there's just so many questions, so many things I want to, I mean, you're not just then translating the Bible, you really have to think about what it means and what it's saying, think into the world and the language and the ideas that they have and find a way of saying it. So it's both a Bible and almost a commentary at the same time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We're sitting here and you have the New Testament in Kamula on your lap. Ta-da, job done. But there must have been times that were hard because you were tired. It was a strange environment. You get over the initial euphoria and excitement. Everyone has lows. What gave you hope when it was a struggle, for instance, to work out how we do we say Christ in you, the hope of glory? What, what was your hope in amongst all of that? Well, that last picture was, uh, was supposedly showing you one of these moments when there wasn't any hope. <laughs> um, but um, by the grace of God, we always, always found a way to, to overcome all these problems that we had in the, in the translation. And when things did not go well in general, uh, and those times did happen, um, then we were just thinking that we know that God wants us to be here. And that knowledge is, is like a bedrock that uh, will carry you through harder periods. God is there. He wants us to be there. We will make it by his grace. Okay. And you saw a measure, and I know because you've told me that it's not always the case for Bible translators, but you were privileged to see something of the realization of that hope even before you left. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So after the uh, dedication of the New Testament, we were um, privileged to stay on for another two to three years. Um, Peter had come back to Glasgow uh, in 2005, 2006 uh, to start university. Um, but we uh, still wanted to do more Bible teaching and whatnot um, in, in PNG and en enable our younger son to finish up the school system there. So it was a huge privilege to stay on among the Kamula. Immediately after the New Testament dedication, there was a huge um, turning of the people to God and they just wanted to um, sing. They were composing songs day and night. We were there, you know, the jungle is very dark at night, um, and, you know, we were just lying there, and, but we could hear them singing songs, composing all these new songs. They were having meetings to read from the, their Bible, um, you know, prayer was going on all the time. We could see people sitting outside reading, on their verandas reading. 
um, youth groups uh, were having retreats and the men's groups and the women's groups. Uh, the school uh, bought loads of copies and used that as their basis um, for their religious education. Um, and then people came to us and told us how wonderful it was to have God's word in their language. One old man, Apaya, came and said, before... Uh, we only had God's word in another language, but we didn't understand it. But now we ha- that we have it in our own Kamula language, it goes up into our insides <laughs> and speaks to us oh, wow. with power. That's beautiful. And then, and then one day, um, I'll, and I'll finish with this. Um, a friend, a friend came, um, Elali, to us, and he said, um, "Can I just read something?" Uh, He says, I was reading in Philippians chapter 1. Can I uh, just read that to you? I want to ask you something. So he read uh, Philippians 1, 21, which uh, goes like this. Uh, and well if done. I, That's very <laughs> impressive. <laughs> so if I, tr- in, if I translate that literally back into English, it's because if I am still alive, I am living for Christ. But it's also good for me to die because then I will be with Christ. Right. So in English, uh, our translations normally say, for me to live is Christ, to die okay. is gain. And Elali said to us, is it true, he said, we Kamula people, we've always been afraid to die. He said, but this seems to be saying that we don't need to be afraid to die anymore. And we said, yes, that's right. If you believe in Jesus, you have hope of eternal life with him. Beautiful. That's wonderful. Um, just one last question because we're then going to we're going to watch a little video as a kind of break and then move on and talk about the next bit um how did you see hope made manifest in the Kamula people i mean 18 years not just education but gradually they were getting god's word in their own language and therefore getting what god has said to them for themselves you, you've given us an example there but but as a people you know how did how did it how did they change change um the kamula traditionally are were animists so they believed um in evil spirits they believed that areas of the jungle uh were um controlled by evil spirits and they'd always been afraid of that um because they were able to read the scriptures for themselves they could see that Jesus has got power over evil and over evil spirits. And they would say to us, we realize that there are evil spirits, but we don't need to be afraid because Jesus is more powerful. Um, So that would be one example. Another example would be that during our time there, a logging company came into the area because the Kamula at the time owned the biggest area available in the world for logging. Right. Um, And a logging company came in, and that changed a lot of things um, 
and brought in a lot of um, unhelpful influences into the area. And again, they said, thank you for translating the Bible. Now we know how to deal with these uh, difficult things that are coming and how we should respond. Okay, um, okay. So... Those were big things. Um, one thing on a practical level that we saw, um, traditionally, men were warriors. They were protecting women, and women did all the work. The men were standing with bows and arrows to protect the women. Now that there was no war, what did men do? Men did nothing. Women still continued to do all the work. But we noticed that when some men really became Christians, they really learned um, the truths about the Bible, they started to help their wives. And that was a wonderful thing to see. Mm. Thank you.